This week on Daiwa, we're discussing Wapalo County. A man disappears on Christmas Eve and his body is found in a mine a few days later. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValley and Allie Tulin. Alrighty, Allie, we're in Wapolo County. Yes. Have you been? It's... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. I totally forgot about that part. <laughs> How? You know what? I don't know, and I don't think I have been, uh, but I need to go, for sure. That's a bummer. What about you? It's a good one. Yeah, I, I have been. You've been? Nothing exciting to report. Okay. I mean, I like the county, but nothing personally. That, yeah, that you went for. Yeah. I do know it's a southeastern county in Iowa, and it's named after a Meskwaki chief, which, if you want to learn more about the Meskwakis in Iowa, check out our Tama County episode. Okay, and the Tumla is the county seat and the largest city in the county. And fun fact, because you know I love my video game fun facts, Atumla oh, yeah. was proclaimed the video game capital of the world by a mayoral decree issued on November 30th in 1982. The city hosted the first North American Video Olympics in the fall of 82, and as of 2009, the City Council and Chamber of Commerce are looking to create the International Video Game Hall of Fame Museum, and they've been continually inducting people into it, even without the physical building. So in 2020, Will Wright, the original designer of The Sims, was inducted as the developer or industry leader of the year. So that's very fun. And loose reminder i guess our mahaska county episode we talk about the oskaloosa man who had a high score in the nibbler and that's just a 30 minute drive from Matumwa. so i bet he was influenced by the video game capital of the world probably i'm waiting for him to be (laughs) inducted yeah all right well my fun fact is that Atumwa was or maybe is still home to i don't know where this guy currently lives but Um, to one of the most successful book thieves in U.S. history. And so according to the New York Times, this guy, Stephen Bloomberg, who's now in his 70s, was caught in 1990 after stealing over 4 million books from 327 libraries and museums. And he stole books in 45 states, also D.C., and two Canadian provinces. (laughs) Right? So many books. Um, And I think he had like a big kind of like one of those old Victorian homes where he kept all of them in a tumwa. But anyway, the value of his haul included rare books that was estimated at $20 million. And his father described him as kind of an eccentric genius and said he had a lifelong obsession for collecting and packing away old things. Uh, But some of the books he stole were the first book ever published in Connecticut, which was a 1710 religious tract called Confessions of Faith. And a book from 1493 titled The Nuremberg Chronicle, which is worth $35,000 alone. But Bloomberg was convicted in 1991 by a federal jury in Des Moines on four counts of conspiracy and interstate transportation of stolen property. Wow, I have so many thoughts on this guy. First of all, there's no way you can store four million books in your house. So did he just sell them like right away? No, I think he stored them in his home. 
Four million. He had all of them. He had all of them. That's too many books. Beth, have you ever seen Hoarders? (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) So then my second question is, it reminds me of that documentary that was maybe even made into a, like a movie movie about Mm -hmm. the kids who tried stealing the John James Audubon book. The original Birds of America. I've seen that. I think you would actually like it. It's just like a total Tom thing, but he made me watch it. It's interesting. They were like college kids, and the college held the John James Audubon painted all the Birds of America, and yeah. they had the original one, and they did this big heist to try and steal it. It's like worth Dang. millions of dollars or something. Anyways. Yeah. Kind of a, my big question is like, Dude, why not go after some cooler books? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> My final thought on this was Confessions of Faith really sounds like an Usher album. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> well, let's get to... Oh, shit. No, you have another fun fact. Sorry. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> How dare you? Okay, last fun fact. Um, Eldon, Iowa, which is in Wapolo County is home to the American Gothic house from the famous 1930s Grant Wood painting. Very cool. And now Eldon holds a Gothic Days Festival every year in June. Have you been to that? I have not, but I would love to see if anybody, like, misinterprets it and comes (laughs) dressed up in, like, Gothic gear. (laughs) I think we should crash and do that. (laughs) Super eyeliner. Heavy eyeliner. (laughs) (laughs) I love this idea. All right, well, let's get to our murder. I'm going to let you start. Okay. (laughs) We're out of practice. Oh, man. I know. It's been a minute. So the year is 1936. Franklin Roosevelt is re-elected as president. Buddy Holly and John McCain were born, which is kind of crazy to think that they were the same age. Um, And according to Iowa history, 1936 was a year full of exceptionally hot summer and cold and snowy winter days that caused a lot of hardships for Iowans. So not a great year on the weather scale. I just love that that's like officially a part of the history books for 1936. (laughs) Tough times. (laughs) Some harsh weather. (laughs) Um, But anyway, on December 31st of 1936... A body is recovered from an abandoned airshaft mine outside of Atumla, and the body was of Earl Nichols. Earl was 53. He was a butcher at a meatpacking plant, and Beth, I'm going to need your help on what he looked like. I was trying to get like a good celebrity doppelganger description, but I just like can't tell from that blurry photo. I know, it's kind of hard to see, but he's got a very scrunchy face and hair that looks like well, actually, now I... Tom Holland? Yeah, kind of. That's good. <laughs> okay. Like, sort of in his long hair phase. Yeah. Yeah. But looks very polished. Looks just like a nice guy. Yeah, normal dude. Um, He's also married and has six kids. And he had been reported missing on December 26th after disappearing during the afternoon on Christmas Eve. And according to the police report, Earl had about $400 on him and was last seen getting into a coupe, which is a type of car. Then on December 31st, we hear Claude Fouch signed a confession to Wapolo County authorities that he had killed Earl on Christmas Eve after striking him over the head with a hammer. Claude is 42 years old. He's a Sheraton mining engineer. And again, going to need your help with this one. He looks... 
He looks a little scarier. I mean, this photo just doesn't really look good. He looks like he has a broken nose. He kind of looks like Lenny Bruce, if you watch Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yeah, yeah. He does. I think that's good. Okay, thanks. And so he is a married man with six kids, and he's Earl's wife's first cousin. So Fouch led officers to the air shaft where he dumped Earl's body. The air shaft is over 100 feet deep and up to 50 feet is filled with water. According to the Muscatine Journal, Sheraton authorities found Fouch on December 29th half dead from asphyxiation from inhaling gas in the washroom of a gas company plant. Authorities brought him in and he underwent three hours of grilling Wednesday night before he broke and led the officers to the air shaft. We hear that the murder is believed to have been from a fight where Earl told Fouch to, quote, stay away from the Nichols home in Ottumwa. The paper also reports that Fouch and Earl had been friends for 20 years and he often visited Earl. One interesting note is that Fouch took about $200 from Earl, but refused to admit robbery was a motive. The county attorney said he would wait to file charges until Earl's body was recovered. A Sheriff Harding of Tumwa said he planned to resume efforts and expected they would use grapple hooks to try to reach the body. So we get more from Sheriff Harding from the Cedar Rapids Gazette on January 1st of 1937. We know Fouch is being held without bond in Wapolo County Jail after pleading innocent. Sheriff Harding said officers found Fouch on December 29th and said, quote, After doctors brought Fouch back to life, he told us about the killing and admitted he did it. He said he went with Nichols to inspect the mine because they figured on reopening the shaft. He told us that he slugged Nichols over the head with a hammer, took $200 from his pockets, and dumped the body down the shaft. We've got a clear case of murder, although Fouch's motive is still a little cloudy. He said he killed Nichols because of a quarrel over family matters and not to rob him. On January 7th, we hear a county attorney's information charging Cloud Fouch with first-degree murder for the slaying of Earl Nichols will be filed. The county attorney, E.J. Greyer, expects the Fouch trial will still happen in January, and Fouch waived to the grand jury at a preliminary hearing. He was not represented by an attorney and appeared nervous and worried in the courtroom. On January 27th, we heard that Fouch is now pleading guilty to second-degree murder, he was sentenced to 50 years in the state penitentiary at Fort Madison by District Judge R.W. Smith of Centerville. It was reported that his wife was in the courtroom for the sentencing with five out of their six children and Fouch's two brothers. Fouch was quoted when referring to his sentencing, saying, quote, it could have been worse. Judge Smith was quoted saying, this is one of the most difficult cases I have had to determine for some time. There is evidence of the motive of robbery. There's evidence of the motive of self-defense, and there's so much other evidence contradictory to the theory of either side. The state had contended the murder was committed for robbery and evidence was introduced by County Attorney Greyer to prove that Fouch knew Earl carried a sum of money on him. The defense attorney, George Stewart and A.V. Haas, were appointed by the judge to represent Fouch. They pleaded self-defense and placed Fouch on the stand to tell his story of the fight, which led to him killing Earl. Fouch also said he spent the night on Fouch also said he spent the night of December 23rd at Earl's house, and that Earl had ordered him to stay away the next day. Physicians who examined Earl's body said that he died of a crushed skull from the blow over the head. 
Earl's wife and other family members who had testified that Fouch and Earl had a friendly relationship were in the courtroom for the sentencing. Again, Earl's wife was Fouch's first cousin. And that's all we hear about Earl's murder and Fouch's fate. There's no article or record we could find of when he was released from Fort Madison, but we did find his obituary. So, Cloud Fouch died in 1964 at the age of 70 and is buried in the Laurel Hill Cemetery in Des Moines next to his wife, Elsie, who died two years later in 1966. His obit says he died of a heart ailment at his home and had a Catholic funeral. He had lived in Des Moines for eight years, formerly residing in Sheraton and Council Bluffs. He had 22 grandchildren and 13 great-grandchildren. And we know Earl is buried in the Shaw Cemetery in Atumwa. His funeral was on January 3rd of 1937. His wife, Dolly, lived until 1971. It looked like at least four of his six kids had also passed as of 2009. Dolly remarried the same year Earl died to a man named John Tudor. Well, kind of an interesting story. Should we give Tab's call? Yeah, let's do it. Hey, Tabs, thanks for joining. Hello. We are on Wapolo County um, talking about the Earl Nichols case. Have you ever been? Yes, I have been to the famous city of Ottumwa. Why is it famous? Yeah. I don't know, just because I thought it was. Um, I don't re- recall a lot about it, but I've been there. And I've been to the airport. And if I recall... Richard Nixon trained there in World War II. Are you what? just making this up? <laughs> Are you going to live fact check? Right. We're live fact checking this. Oh my God. You think I'm crazy? A little bit. Whatever. He was from California. Why would he be? Because he was in the military in World War II. But there, what there did a, the military there, have to do with the Tumwa? There was a naval training station in Tumwa. Why would there be a naval training station in Ottumwa, Iowa? I'm trying to figure out why. I landed a helicopter there one time and I read the plaque. I can't find anything. We'll, we'll say it could have happened. Someone sent <laughs> in a photo of the plaque. All right, moving on. Uh, where is the craziest place you've ever found a body? Under a doghouse. We've talked about this one, yeah. haven't we? I think yeah. so. But that's the craziest place. Can you do like a three sentence recap? Uh, It's a domestic violence case. And the woman buried her boyfriend under the doghouse after she shot him. And we found him about six months later. Okay. And sorry, going back to our fun fact that we talked about in this episode, we were talking about the famous book thief, Stephen Bloomberg. Had you heard about that? Didn't he steal a bunch of books from the University of Iowa? everywhere so like i think like 45 states and then i think they all ended up in omaha and like the fbi categorized them and had to send them back but i think it took Um, either months or a year or so that sounds right because didn't he steal them like from stanford and yeah other places too okay cool just wondering do you believe claude's motive was truly self-defense um it's just a weird because everybody talks about how they were kind of buddies and stuff. And I mean, it was just, just rather bizarre. 
I don't, do you guys even believe there is a motive yet? Has anybody shook one out? It sounded like they were trying to say self-defense, but it was weird because he robbed him. Yeah. I mean, it just, but they knew each other. And, and they used right to stay be- at, at each other's houses. House. It sounded like there was a fallout. Right before Christmas too. Yeah. Um, after Richard Nixon completed officer training school, he went to the Naval Reserve Aviation Base in Ottumwa, Iowa, where he served as an aide to the executive officer until May 1943. Wow, look at that. Fun fact. Thank you. The um, airport's nice, by the way. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Okay, so you're not you're not buying the self-defense, or you're just very I don't know what the motive. I, I when it when you typically work self-defense cases, do you think it's common for people to hide, hide the body and rob the victim? No. Um, they might hide the body if they get scared, but robbing the victim, it takes it away from the self-defense whole. I mean, is it plausible? I don't know, maybe. But I think the motive of this case went to the grave with everybody that was involved. Okay, so... It's weird that Claude's wife was Earl's cousin and she was in court, I think for a little bit, but it, I mean, again, everyone kept talking about the, how they had a good relationship. Let's say Earl's family didn't want to press charges and they really believed Claude's story that it was self-defense. Would that have ever like affected the state going after it? If it was like, it was a supposed murder. It might have affected it a little bit, but for the most part, family members, community members are not going to stop a prosecution for murder. It's too heinous of a crime. Okay. Why would Fouch waive the grand jury at a preliminary hearing and not be represented by an attorney? Well, in those days, it was before the Gideon case, so um, his ability to get an attorney may have been compromised. Although I thought in Iowa, especially in capital cases, the judges appointed uh, lawyers even before Gideon. I would have to check that though. I don't know that for sure. But again, this is a very confusing, I don't know if the newspaper got it right because they said the county attorney filed a trial information. There'd be no reason to go to preliminary hearing if there was a trial information filed. And- Why go into that? It's the, they're the same. The trial information, there are states that do preliminary hearings as a matter of course. Nebraska does. It's a probable cause hearing to make sure the case can go forward. I mean, is that maybe just a matter of like reporters at the time not knowing the difference? And well, the Iowa criminal procedure manual or, or statute still have the ability to go to preliminary hearing but it's almost been universally replaced by trial informations in Iowa. And then the second part of that equation is when you got to a preliminary hearing, which is supposed to determine probable cause, why would you now go to a grand jury at the request of the defendant for the same kind of hearing? Because a grand jury is a probable cause hearing. We rarely do grand juries in Iowa. Hmm. So it's just, it's very confusing. I don't know what happened. I'm not saying it didn't happen that way because, again, I'm not acquainted with the, the rules of criminal procedure from 1930s, but it just it seemed like we were trying to do the th- 
they were trying to set him through three of the same thing. Who all is allowed in the courtroom and who isn't? Like, can anyone from the public just watch? Usually the courtroom is open to anyone from the public. Judges can tailor that if they believe there's going to be some type of prejudice or there's some threat or something of that nature. But generally, any member of the public is allowed to come in and observe court. And in fact, when I taught uh, community college, one of my assignments was for kids to go down into court and to watch for some proceedings. So they kind of got a taste of what it looks like and what it sounds like. We also did that fun fact in journalism school. There you go. Nice. It's weird. I didn't really enjoy it that much. <laughs> Do you have to say you're going and get like a special no. ticket of admission or something? I don't know. Like no, what if they do lotteries once in a while, if it's yeah. a very famous case and like the OJ Simpson case, you know, you, you register to get into the lottery to go in and watch. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing about this case is we know Claude or um, Fouch was released well before he died in his seventies. But again, no explanation was given. No report of his release was mentioned in papers or anything. Why would you guess he was released? Well, I would assume that he was convicted of something less than murder in the first degree, either murder to manslaughter or something of that nature where there was a term of years. It was, yeah, it was second degree. Yeah, so there had been a term of years and probably was a model inmate or whatever and got paroled. Are you surprised that it was second over first, even though he had he admitted to it? No, not with all the confusion about why he did it or what the circumstances were. Any uh, final thoughts on this one? No, I think the answers to this case have died with the, the incumbents that were involved in it. I just... There, there are just so many confusing details that I believe that nobody's ever really going to know the whole story on what happened. All right. Well, thanks for joining. We'll talk to you next time. See ya. Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But... I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, fax, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.